You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. All right, so uh, just as always, if you have kids up to second grade that you're sending to one of the classes, uh, you can send them to the back of the room or walk them back there if you want to. If you're keeping your kids with you, that's fine too. Uh, They're welcome to be in here with us. Um, And for those of you who are staying, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25 this morning. So if you want to, uh, to get that text ready, I'll, I'll give just kind of a brief recap of where we've been uh, leading up to this point, uh, very brief in fact, um, and then we'll read our text and just like we always do, we'll ask the Lord for some help once we've read it. Uh, so up to this point, if you haven't been following along on a weekly basis with us going through the book of Genesis, Um, Big picture, kind of broad stroke uh, summary of what's going on. We uh, have seen God create everything that is outside of himself. He has always been. He's eternal. Uh, God over everything creates the universe, including the earth, and he puts a man and a woman in the earth, and he's living with them and fellowshipping with them in perfect, unbroken, unblemished unity in holiness uh, and in goodness and in all pleasure. And, uh, and Adam and Eve, that first man and first woman, uh, sinned against God by disobeying him directly, uh, by doing something he had commanded them not to do, uh, because they were deceived by Satan and believed that if they did this thing in disobedience to God, that they could actually become like God. And uh, that pride in, uh, crept up inside their hearts and uh, they sinned. And through their sin, the entire world, the entire creation was broken, was fractured, and was made sick with sin. And uh, it was truly an infection. Uh, and that has been an infection in the world, in human beings, and, and in the earth until this very day. Uh, but... There came a time where that sin had become so rampant and so unhindered in the world that God decided it was necessary to basically eradicate everything from the earth except for a very small group, one man named Noah and his wife and their sons, three sons and three daughter-in-law daughters-in-law, and uh, saved them by commanding them to build an ark, and then he sent rain on the earth and saved with them, along with them, several animals uh, who would repopulate the earth after the waters receded, and God did just that, flooded the earth, and then caused the waters to recede, and Noah and his family began to populate the earth again, uh, along with the animals. From that time, a very unique family line was was established where you had these Hebrew people come, this line of people who were Hebrews, including Abraham. Uh, His name was Abram when he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. God called him out, spoke to him, told him that he was going to send him to a land that he would show him, that he would make Abram into a great nation and give him an heir who would become that great nation Uh, greater than the sands of the shore, greater than the stars that he could count. And God covenanted himself 
with Abram in order to do this made a very sure promise based on his own character, his own perfection and holiness, that he would see it through. And sure enough, he did give Abram, later he named Abraham, and his wife Sarah did give them a son named Isaac. And uh, Isaac was born to them in their old age. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, it was miraculous. And Isaac has uh, grown up here. He's taken his own wife, we'll see at the age of 40, he took his own wife named Rebecca. And so here at chapter 25, we're picking up in the midst of this story of how God is working to build this unique family line in order to bring about redemption and healing from sin and salvation even in the world. It's meant to come through this family line. So we're just very in the, in the beginning stages of God establishing this family in order to see it through to completion. So if you would with me, pick up in Genesis chapter 25, and I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord for some help. Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leomim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and, their, uh, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. You'll remember that the Lord prophesied that about him. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom sounds like the Hebrew for red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. God, please help us. As Matt has asked you, Lord, we ask you again, will you please speak to us? Will you please move with your power, by your spirit, through your word, to speak to us, to change us? Lord, left to ourselves, we're sinful, we're ignorant, we're rebellious. But by the power of your spirit in us, Lord, we have hope to be transformed, to be made into the image of Christ. Please progress us forward in that this morning. Help us to understand you, your plans, your character, your will. Holy Spirit, will you please work in the deep places of our hearts this morning that are dark, that are unsurrendered, where sin abides, where doubt disbelief abide where insecurity abides will you please help us to find ourselves securely in Christ this morning and to praise him for it in our inner self to trust him to walk with him we trust you only for these things Holy Spirit because we know there's no power in us to do it so please work for the glory of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here in this passage, of course, we see the, the uh, text of Genesis changing from telling us about Abraham to now telling us about Isaac. And actually, it's surprising to me that we don't get more time with Isaac. I wish that we could get to know him better uh, but we don't get a lot of time with him. Uh, the text pretty quickly moves on to Jacob and Esau. And so uh, you're, you're going to see from uh, chapters 25 all the way through 36 
uh, that we begin to learn about Jacob and Esau and how the Lord is going to move uh, in their relationship and particularly through Jacob to keep, continue establishing this family line. But here, as we're introduced to um, Jacob and Esau's birth, we see Isaac uh, at 60 years old. We see his wife, Rebecca waiting on a son, waiting on a child. And this is intentionally mirroring Abraham's experience that we see uh, Isaac with a barren wife and seeking the Lord and praying to the Lord and the Lord answering and giving grace for her to conceive. It's intentional that it would mirror that. We're not meant to forget everything that we've learned and everything we've been through with the experience of Abraham and Sarah and and trying to trust the Lord and walk closely with Him, but having their doubts, having their struggles, but being remembered by the Scriptures as people of faith. We're meant to remember all those things. So here we are with Isaac and Rebecca, and, and very quickly we see that she is barren here, starting in verse uh, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. You see that he is a faithful man. He's been blessed by the Lord, and he's responded by being a worshiper of the Lord and looking to the Lord as someone who uh, trusts God. And that's why, again, he is remembered as someone who trusted God and that it was counted to him as righteousness. Don't forget that we're continuing to see this theme, this thread of righteousness that comes by faith and not by works, always being woven through the Genesis text. And Isaac is no exception. He was a man who trusted God. He prayed, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived Verse 22, the children struggled together within her. Now, chronologically, we see them, we see Rebecca conceiving and having these twins inside of her, and it may feel like, uh, okay, we've, we've seen now in, in chapter 25, we've seen Abraham die. Uh, we saw in uh, chapter 23, if I'm right, yes, 23, we saw Sarah die. Now in 25, we're seeing Abraham die. We're even given mention of Esau dying here in uh, chapter 25, and then we have the birth of Esau and Jacob. But you have to understand that always in Genesis, things aren't listed chronologically. So actually, the birth of Esau and Jacob is happening 15 years after the death, uh, sorry, before the death of Abraham. So he lived to see at least 15 years worth of what we're going to see described here about Esau and Jacob. So you can imagine his elation, his joy to see that Isaac was going to have children, that the Lord answered the prayer. 15 years uh, of watching them grow up as, as babies and as young men, but then I think probably by the time they were 15, because it was already happening in the womb, Abraham probably also witnessed the contention and the fighting, the warring between Esau and Jacob. And I could imagine that there were a lot of prayers offered to him before he died. So then we have here the children struggling together within her. 
And it, uh, again, remember we said chapters 25 through 36 are going to continually uh, talk about Jacob and Esau and their warring uh, and, and their contentiousness between each other and how God is working through that to work his will and establish this peculiar family line as his plan of salvation uh, to rescue humanity from sin. We see it already starting here in the womb, the children struggling within her. This becomes a theme for the next several chapters. But then God gives this declaration, this prophetic declaration to Rebekah about her two children, and it goes completely against all expectations and all traditions. Read it with me, please. Chapter, sorry, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Not something that a mother wants to hear, right? I mean, I feel like my children are always fighting, but that, this is nothing compared to Jacob and Esau. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. This is, this is very unusual kind of speech coming from God. This goes completely against tradition and against expectation. It was always the firstborn that had the place of preeminence in the household. And I know that's not exactly the way we do things now, especially as Americans and as Westerners. We always want to view things in total equality. But you understand the whole world doesn't work that way and certainly hasn't always worked that way. Uh, in, in the ancient Near East, the firstborn was preeminent in the household, and all those who came after him were subservient to him. They were in subjection to him. And he received the bulk of the inheritance, and then they would receive kind of the scraps of the inheritance. But if the father was wealthy, he would pass down his wealth to his firstborn, and the rest would continue to be for the most part, dependent on him. But here's God saying, the one shall be stronger than the other. We don't really have any description of which one shall be stronger. But then he says, the older shall serve the younger. That's a scandalous statement to come from God. I don't mean scandalous because God's saying something wrong, but scandalous because a human being at that time and a mother about to bear twins would have considered that very unusual, very unorthodox. You could even imagine that Isaac would have been embarrassed to know this. That the surrounding people would have looked and said, what's going on with this man's household? That the older serves the younger. How can this be? It tells us that God is doing something unique. God is doing something unique. But that shouldn't surprise us at that point, at this point, should it? that God would be doing something unique, something unexpected. Uh, I'll stop for just a moment here and, and just kind of put it out there and ask you, at this point in your journey with God in Christ, is there very much that God could do that would surprise you anymore? I, I know it's hard to walk with God and to not feel constantly surprised either surprised in your discouragement about how things have gone or surprised in your encouragement about how things have gone. But in either case, whether you're encouraged or discouraged about how things have gone, it's very hard to walk any length of time with God and not have this feeling like, 
what are you doing? Why would it have to unfold like this? Or why would you do things like that? Or why would you choose this person to bring about this thing? Why would you choose me to do this? Why wouldn't you choose me to do that? So often we find ourselves walking in constant surprise with God about how it is that he accomplishes his will. And this is no exception. In fact, this is one of those reasons why we can look to God with surprise, but not with discouragement and not with hopelessness, because we can see that God has always been, in human understanding, very unorthodox, very non-traditional. We build our traditions and we build our orthodoxy, and God is constantly frustrating and defying those systems to get what he wants, to do what he wants, to see what he wants to see. This is a surprising thing in their lives, but it shouldn't surprise us up to this point. Even look at the text of Genesis up to this point. You have God create all that is. And he puts two people, just two, just two people. There's not a lot of margin here for distraction. Two people living on one planet with God there dwelling in the place with them in all of his glory and happiness and intimacy. And what do those two people do? They rebel against God. They defy his authority. They try to become like him in authority and knowledge. And what is God's response? Well, if you're just a person with no knowledge of the Bible and no knowledge of God, and you're hearing that God created this world, put two people in it, decided to dwell with them in holiness and perfection and joy and satisfaction, and that those two people rebelled against him, what would you expect a just and holy God to do? To destroy them. But what does God do instead? He clothes their nakedness. He commissions them. He sends them out and is gracious to them. He continues to give them children and to be with them and to love them, to provide for them. There's a consequence for their sin, but the consequence isn't complete and utter rejection from God, but rather he's always coming to them, bringing himself to them. Even if they would reject him, he's always calling out, always beckoning, always drawing. God always does the unexpected. So we shouldn't be surprised up to this point. God is making it known that he's going to do something by his own will, by his own hand, to establish his own plan of salvation. He's defying nature and defying expectations. So here's just at this point in the text, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to join with me here with Rebecca and Isaac and Abraham Join with me here in the text to look at God as the God who does what he wants. To look at him as the God who has all sovereign authority to do what pleases him, which is always good and right. Even if human beings don't expect it, don't understand it, just please join with me now in the text to look to God that way. You are the God who does what you want. And it's always good and always right. Verse 23. 
Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, if we pay attention to verse 27, we will see that Jacob, the younger, was clearly not the physically stronger of the two. These twin brothers, one was physically, naturally stronger than the other. Verse 27, look at it with me, please. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So Jacob was what the, what the Bible's describing here, I think, is what we would call indoorsy. He was an indoorsy man. He was just quiet and gentle in spirit, and he dwelled in the tents. While Esau was this man of the field, he was rugged, he was hairy, he was red. Why is he red, and why does that make him just so wild-seeming, just this red beast of a man? You can imagine, imagine him with me, out in the field, just with a sharp rock in his bare hands, just gutting a deer for his dad's dinner. Dried blood, always under his fingernails, matting his arm hair. Just wild, coming in from the field every night. This was Esau, and then there was Jacob, the indoorsy man, the quiet man, dwelling in the tents with his mom. You could even imagine here, when it describes Jacob as a quiet man, and it's purposefully putting him up against Esau, and it's meaning to contradict their natures. That Jacob was a quiet man. Well, what does that mean about Esau? In all of his ruggedness and manliness, he was a loud man. Maybe even a brash man. He was the guy who's going to go in and command the attention of everyone in the room. I'm here with my dead stuff. Just waving his bloody things around and it always has a weapon on him. You know, you, you guys all know the guy. Maybe you're the guy who always has the knife. Anytime somebody's trying to cut something or open something, you're always just like... Whoosh! You always have your giant scary knife on you. I always feel so inadequate around you, but it's just so cumbersome, the big knife in the pocket. And you imagine there, Jacob, every time you know, Esau comes into the tents and he's grabbing his little brother and giving him the big, violent, aggressive, obnoxious noogie, and Jacob's just, ah, and all these things. You can just get kind of the picture of them And if you imagine God's description of them, the one shall be stronger than the other, and what would that have meant to everyone watching Esau and Jacob grow up at home? Esau's clearly the stronger one. He's clearly the stronger one. But the older shall serve the younger. What is God doing here? What is God meaning to communicate Because God doesn't do things just to defy expectation. He does constantly defy our expectations, but not just for the purpose of frustrating us. There's always some point to it. There's always something about himself that he's communicating to us. Every time he interacts with humanity, he means for us to know something, to understand something about himself. He's gracious in that way. God's always communicating. So for him to create Esau to be like this and create Jacob to be like this and then cause somehow Esau to be in subjection to the one who's more naturally weak and quiet 
timid, indoorsy. Doesn't seem like a conquering type, does he? Doesn't seem like someone who would usurp his older, stronger brother. I know just older by minutes, but the firstborn, the one with all the natural kind of strength and talent for survival and dominance. What's God doing? Here's what God's doing. God wants us to know how different they were and how naturally superior Esau was so that we will understand something about the nature of God, that he does not pay attention to outward appearance and his grace does not flow more freely to people who have more to offer. This is what God wants us to know about his nature, about his character. He does not pay attention to outward appearance and his grace does not flow more freely with people who, quote, have more to offer. This is not the way God operates. And, and we'll see more and more as we continue to search out the truth of this passage, how that affects us. So remember that in Genesis, we see God establishing this unique family line. It starts with this Hebrew and goes down to Abraham the great-grandson of the Hebrew, and then Hebrew has Isaac. Now Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Continuing this family line, he decides to continue the family line through whom this multitude of people, more than the stars that can be numbered, more than the sand on the seashore, this offspring of Abraham, and that there's one offspring among the offspring who will actually vanquish, overcome his enemies, conquer sin, conquer death, bring healing to humanity, that that family line is not going to be built through the stronger, more rugged, more domineering Esau, but through the gentle, quiet Jacob. Please don't let this truth be missed on you. That it's not through natural strength or human power or human wisdom or natural order that God is working his plan of salvation. That God is working in humanity to bring about knowledge of him. It's not through those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to actually turn to it because we've got a, a little bit of a section that we're going to read there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're really camping out here on this truth that God's communicating by choosing Jacob over Esau, the naturally stronger, the firstborn. We're camping out because there's something critical we need to understand about God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John of the New Testament then you're going to get Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And in the very beginning, chapter 1, starting in verse 18, this is what we see Paul say to the church in Corinth. For the word of the cross, that is the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing. If folly is a new or a fancy sounding word to you, it just means foolishness. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, a quote of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, I will defeat, I'll frustrate. End quote. 
Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was communicating wisdom, but the world didn't understand it, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Of course, understand, Paul is not saying that there is weakness or foolishness in God, but if there were, it would be far superior to the wisest, most strongest kind of human agency. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers, speaking to Christians. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, look at Esau. Noble birth. Powerful. Maybe not so wise. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord because, brothers and sisters, you find nothing in yourself to boast in. You're not of noble birth. You're not wise. You're not strong. You're not anything that is. You're something that is not. But God has chosen the things that are not to shame the things that are. He's chosen the things that are foolish and are weak to shame the things that are wise and strong. You could, you could try to describe this as like God is always for the underdog. You know, God's always for the Cinderella story. Like March Madness comes around and he's always rooting for Kent State or something. But it's really deeper than that. It's really much deeper than that. The way Paul says it, the things that are not, to shame the things that are. Like, whatever the world says exists and is strong and is foolish and matters, God is going, I'm going to take the things you don't even count as existing. I'm going to take things that in your view are not, and I'm going to use them to shame your wisdom and strength. I'm going to use them to supplant, to displace you. Now, why, again, am, am I camping out on this, making such a big deal of this. Here's why. Because I'm a human being, just like you, 
And when I read this text, there's a particular part of my heart that is both convicted and challenged and comforted all in one big confusing swirl. And it's that part of me that thinks that I have to be something in order to be useful to God and loved by God. There's some part of me that really thinks that, that feels that. So because I I know my tendency, my temptation, I, I want to ask you to join with me in thinking this way, that if you find yourself tempted to doubt God's love for you, God's willingness to give grace to you, God's plan to save you, hold you, keep you secure, because you're weak or because you're foolish or because in your own eyes you're almost non-existent, unimportant in the world's eyes, even in your own eyes, I urge you, brother, sister, to take to heart this morning that God has never been a God who rejects the weak and the lowly. He has always been a God who exalts the weak and the lowly, who uses the weak and the lowly to defeat the wise and the proud. Those ones that the world looks to for salvation and strength and hope, God says they're actually a hopeless, weak, and foolish thing. Look what I can do with something that is nothing. This is our God. So when you feel that temptation to count yourself out, to condemn yourself, to cast yourself out as if God couldn't possibly love and bear with something like you, Something like you, in all of your sinfulness, and all of your doubting, and all of your forgetfulness, all of your wandering, that you are actually the exact kind of thing that God has chosen over and over again through the testimony of Scripture to work through, to use. People like you, stupid things like me, weak Nothing. These are the things that God has chosen to use. Things that realize they have nothing in themselves to boast in. And so they turn to the Lord and they boast only in Him. These are the things God has chosen to use. Remember Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know how when Jesus came on the scene and he began his ministry, how constantly frustrating he was to the Pharisees and Sadducees, all the religious leaders, because what was their greatest aim in ministry? It was to take the people who were something and to join forces with them to be something that would stand over the people and subject them to their authority and their excellence. Look how great we are. Look how obedient we are. Look how zealous we are. Look how stupid you are. Look how needy. Look how weak. Look how failing. Look how sinful. But Jesus didn't go to those who counted themselves as righteous, but those who already knew they were unrighteous. 
The ones who were weak and foolish. Those who were Jesus immediately went to and stayed with. Why are your disciples always eating with prostitutes and tax collectors? Because they're sick. We're here for those who are sick. We're not going to those who think they're something, but those who know they're nothing. This was Jesus' ministry all the time. And it was always frustrating the wisdom of the wise. It was always frustrating the strength of the strong. And calling into question all their motives, of course. This is the way God has always been doing it. Jesus was just carrying out the plan of God, the nature of God. He is the nature and the wisdom and the strength of God. So Jesus was just doing what he had always been doing. Choosing those things that are not to supplant those things that are. Just like Jacob being chosen over Esau, the stronger one, the firstborn, the one who can kill, the one who can dominate. Now we're going to go with the quiet guy in the tent. That's who we're going to work through. Because nobody will think that could have been done, that a multitude, a great nation that can't be numbered, and even an offspring who brings salvation to the world, no one would ever think that that could have been accomplished through Jacob's strength through Jacob's example. But through Esau, someone might have thought, well, he carved out a strong place in the world, and so, of course, this nation grew and prospered because look how strong he was. Look how proud, how domineering he was. Scary to those around him. Now we're going to work through weak, quiet Jacob. That was God's plan. So if you aren't convinced yet, turn to Romans 9. Romans 9. Now, immediately when I say Romans 9, some of you in the room are like, oh, no. And some of you in the room are starting to salivate. And I'm going to tell you both to calm down. Both of you calm down. Romans chapter 9. We are actually going to read the entire chapter, and I may stop at certain points to highlight some things, but I think it's important for us to just Read the whole chapter. Now we're coming off of Romans 8, which when you say Romans 8, everyone in the room is like, yay, Romans 8! And then you go Romans 9 and everyone gets nervous. But we're coming right off of this that we are more than conquerors through God who has loved us if we are in Christ because nothing, neither death nor life, angels, rulers, present, things past, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're coming right off of this glorious truth that brings so much security, so much hope to the soul of the person who's in Christ. And then Paul says in Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, speaking of Israel. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, all these things we're reading about in Genesis, all these things came through Israel. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, 
Now this statement here, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, is coming because it's obvious to the church in Rome that not all of Israel is friendly to Christ. So what's happened then? But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, just by natural means, by genetic means, Abraham is their father. That doesn't make them true Israel, true offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of the promise. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That, remember, that promise was made from God to Sarah. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebecca, about her children, the older will serve the younger. As it is written in Malachi 1, verses 2 through 3, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Up to this point, Paul has launched out of this amazing, hopeful, just exclamation of praise of the supremacy of Christ and what he's accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. But then there's this accompanying anguish about his brothers, Israel, who are not all in Christ. And what do we say to this thing? Well, it turns out that not all who are Israel according to the flesh are Israel according to the promise. Because remember, God's kingdom is a kingdom that is built on faith. On faith. Not on righteousness that's built according to your own obedience, but righteousness built on the obedience of Christ. God's word has not failed. It has always been through promise. Always been through promise. Not through human obedience. Not through human strength or wisdom or agency. But always through God. Always through God. The promise has been maintained through human history. When Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, listen to this. Listen to this madness. In human terms, this is madness. This is frustrating. This, is, this doesn't make any sense, and it seems unfair. Though they were not yet born and had done, done nothing, either good or bad, which means in the natural sense, Esau, firstborn, should just walk right into the promise. But then God did this thing. They had done nothing either good or bad. Neither one of them had disqualified himself or raised himself up. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That God's purpose of election might continue. Now, 
if salvation was coming through human obedience to the law, through human self-righteousness, in other words, I walk in a manner that is worthy of fellowship with God, therefore God is bound by His holiness to commune with me, to fellowship with me, because I'm as holy as He is. If this was how people fellowship with God, then it wouldn't be so that the purpose of election might continue, but so that the purpose of self-righteous communion with God might continue. But instead, God is doing something gracious because there is not a human being who's walked the earth who could be saved in a way that is self-righteous. It is impossible. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all deserve the just penalty of his wrath. So for it to be a system of election, not self-righteousness, is the most gloriously gracious thing that God could have ever done. To institute a way for people to fellowship with God, even though they've been sinners, even though they've been rebels, even though they have hated his justice, that they might be chosen by him to walk with him in joy, in salvation, in fellowship that can't be broken. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. How can this be fair? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Another way of translating is that, let it never be said. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that depends on not on human will or exertion, human effort, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is always the highest purpose of God, that he and his name would be exalted in all the earth. This is why he judges. This is why he saves. This is why he delivers. This is why he gives wrath. Always that his name would be exalted in the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Jacob had done nothing good. Esau had done nothing bad, both so that God's purpose of election might continue, that God was choosing to save sinners, any sinners, one sinner, half a sinner. If God had chosen to save one person born in sin and that that sinner would die in the womb and go and be in fellowship with God, it would have been the most astounding act of grace that we could have ever imagined. But that God is saving countless multitudes of wretched sinners, God be praised. God be praised that we're counted among them. An act of his mercy an act of his mercy, sinners saved from the just penalty of their sin. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? A natural question. If God is doing what God's going to do anyway, then why am I to blame? Verse 20, listen, 
this verse has been killing people for millennia. Just kill, just sitting people down for thousands of years. Who can resist his will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you? Oh, I'm that sinner that was talked about. That one who deserved God's wrath. That was me. Right, sit down. Who are you to answer back to God? Who are you to question God? Do you remember what happened when Job, a righteous person, began to question God? What was God's response? Who is this? Who is this who darkens counsel with words spoke without wisdom? Stand up and I will question you. Job was like, nah, I'm good. I'll just, I'll be down here. Who are we to question God? To question his character, his motives. Remember, if God saves anyone, it's undeserved. Will what is molded say to its molder? Imagine now the potter with the lump of clay. Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make it out of the, out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, vessels for his glory, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Praise God. I am not a Jew, and so I'm so thankful that God has chosen me as his people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, him, the Christ, will not be put to shame. So here we look at Jacob, loved by God, chosen by God, a sinner. His name means deceiver. 
grabbing onto the heel apparently was some expression of deception. If you were someone who grabbed the heel, then you were this deceptive, wily kind of person. You weren't to be trusted. Like in a business dealing, watch out for that guy who grabbed the heel. His name literally means to grab the heel. It means to deceive. That this Jacob was loved and chosen by God. And in the same way, you and I are loved by God because he chose to save some sinners as an act of his grace. Nothing that we did or didn't do. No right, no wrong. Just God's purpose of election continuing. Saving sinners who don't deserve it. It doesn't depend on us, on our parents, on what country we were born in, on our ability to keep commands. It depends only on God's mercy. And by God's mercy, we will be people who are set apart that his name might be glorified and exalted through our faithfulness to him. Our faithfulness in trusting him that even when we sin, even when we fail, he will be faithful to forgive us because Christ shed his blood on the cross for those who trust in him. That all of our sin would be put on him, the wrath of God poured out on him, and all of his righteousness credited to us to make us right with God, to make us worthy of fellowship with him, not through works of our own, but through the works of Christ. We are Jacob. Poor Esau. Poor, poor Esau. Not chosen. Not loved. So we would have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts for those who don't know the love of God. But we cannot count it as an injustice on God's part. We have to instead realize sinners who are dead in their sins receive the wrath that their sin deserves. And sinners who are saved by God's grace receive the love of God that they don't deserve. If we ask the question, how can this be fair? I ask you the question, who really wants fair? Fair means we're all dead. Grace means there's hope for salvation. God is saving sinners that his purpose of election might continue. Praise God that he's so gracious. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.